so excited that I get to get up on a Friday morning and hear you all sing so lovely. Okay, let's not do the phone. That might be distracting. Just so you know, Yvonne says hi. She's missing y'all. Okay. Okay, so I'm sure you noticed I was up here fussing. So normally we would have... Okay, Yvonne's on there watching us. Um, everybody say, hi, Yvonne. Hi. <laughs> um, so normally we have our friend Zoom, so she will send out the link to it. So if there's ever a week that you're like, Rachel, I've got kiddos sick, I'm sick, something's happening, or even if you're out of town but you still want to Zoom in just for our meeting, um, we will have that available for you. Um, so a little bit of Zoom issues this morning, but I think it has repented and is now going to work for us, so that's fabulous. Um, so if you ever tune in, though, I used to ha have the capability of muting everybody as they were coming in, and it's not letting me do it this morning. So just keep in mind, if you're Zooming in, there's a little mute button in the corner. Make sure you mute yourself, because if anything noisy happens at your house, we're all going to hear it. So I um, just want to give you guys that heads up. Okay, so a couple um, of things by way of announcements. When you came in this morning, you should have picked up a bookmark. You should have picked up a memory verse card and a set of notes. So if you missed one of those three things, make sure the notes I would encourage you, go ahead and run and get it right now. Um, if you missed the memory card or the bookmark, you can grab that on your way out. So something we're adding new this semester is Yvonne and I just really wanted to encourage you guys to start putting God's word in your heart, memorizing scripture, having the note cards. So I have one friend who actually sticks it in her car, and when she's at a stoplight, she whips it out, and she reads it over, and then she puts it back. So that's one way where you can, don't do it while you're driving, please. I really love you guys. I love you unsmushed. Okay. So, but it's just a great way or stick it in your mirror. And as you're, if you do mascara, as you're applying your mascara, you can be reading it over or blow drying your hair. You can be reading it over. But for me, I really just need to stick it on my fridge because that food. So um, as you're cooking, you can sit there and be going over it. Just some ideas of just weave it into your daily life. Go over and over and over again. And then your small group leaders will have ways that you can either say it, write it, whichever way they decide. Um, but just us coming back together to um, um, just rejoice in the scripture that God has given us. So that's what that is. There are hole punches. As you get more next week, you, we'll have rings here. So as you get your second one, you'll be able to ring them together. And then by the end of the semester, you'll have 11 different verses that you've at least gone over and hopefully are transforming your mind according to the word of God. And hopefully those will be an encouragement to you and a helpful daily okay, you came on a Friday morning, you listened to the message or the lesson. Um and walked away, but then, I mean, this happens to me. How many times did we walk away and we're like, that was good this morning. It was about something good. 
And this is a way that you can continually be bringing forward to mind the truths that um, God shares with us in his word. Um, A couple thoughts about your books, just as we begin our semester together. So this, if you still need one, we have more on that back table. Or as you get into this and you're like, oh, I have a friend or a mom or a sister or an aunt, cousin, whatever, um, that would so be encouraged by this. They need this. We have extra copies, gals, so feel free to buy them on the back table. You tuck your money in the envelope, make sure it says book table, and you shove it in um, the offering box in the back. Um, Or Jen Schultz is awesome and has set up a Square account for us for the church. So there's a QR code on the sign back there. So if you're techie and that's your preference, that's ready to go too because I don't carry cash and I don't have a checkbook. So so Square is my way to go. It's the easiest way for me. So, um, But just a couple of things that um, I kind of want you to think through as you're reading through your book. Just some overall thoughts. Martha Peace loves to use lots of scripture. Lots. This is why I love her so very much. But it is so easy for us as believers to be like, through the scripture and get back to what she's saying. Can I encourage you? Don't do that. Read the scripture part slowly, carefully, thoughtfully to see if these things are true. What scripture says is more important than what Martha says or Rachel or Yvonne. So be carefully thoughtful as you're reading those scripture. Scripture is what is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So resist that temptation of, okay, let's get back to the previously scheduled program. Okay, so just want to encourage you there. Don't skip over the charts. So Martha's really good about giving us charts. A lot of times they're thought charts. She'll be like, you might be thinking this way. But here's the biblical way to think. And it's easy to just... But those are application parts. You really want to read those over. And maybe you wouldn't say it the exact same way. You have your own, you know, your inner dialogue sounds a little bit different. But really think through how she's thinking it and apply it to your heart. These charts really help drive her points home. Now, usually with books, we don't major on the questions in the back of the chapter. But my friends... This semester is different. Her questions are fabulous. You really are going to be able to drive so much more if you make yourself do the questions in the back. Some of them are just uh, reading comprehension type questions where it's helping you remember what you read in the chapter. But some of them, they are zingers. She'll ask you something and your heart immediately will go, ooh. Make yourself write it out. Make yourself answer those questions. You don't have to share everything in your small groups, but some things, when appropriate, is very helpful to share with our sisters. We're sisters. We stick together. We need each other. Life's hard. Struggles are hard. So we need each other in those moments. And two, sometimes when you're processing biblical truths, theological truths, it is helpful to get them to stick here if you make it come out here. So as we're excited, as we're sharing things, you're going to look at scripture and draw biblical truths out that I might have never even thought of in a million years 
and I'm never going to hear it if you don't tell me. So think of it that way. Um, Becky Jo Laguna has a beautiful, couple beautiful ways that she talks about it. She said, come to small group. We're creating a bouquet. And you have a flower, and you have a flower, and you have a flower. All different flowers, but when we put them all together, what a beautiful bouquet we have. Or two, it's like a potluck. We are all bringing our own food. Y'all, I already know y'all cook good. <laughs> so, but... You need to bring the things you're learning, that spiritual food, so that we can share with each other. Yours is going to taste different than mine and be a delight to my palate because I'm used to my food. My internal dialogue, I'm like, hmm, I listen to her all the time. Let me hear what you're thinking and, and your praises to the Lord and the things that God is doing in your life this week. And that helps us be refreshed and encouraged, okay? So some things to think about, but so... Do your questions. And then it is helpful, as she has her abundance of scripture, practice looking them up in your Bible, in your paper Bible. It's very, very helpful. Now, I'm all about technology. Technology is my friend. But sometimes it's really helpful when you have a verse that impacts you, that Martha drives her point home by pointing to the scripture and you say, wow, it's helpful. Have your Bible right there. Open it up. Underline it. Maybe write a little note to yourself about it. The thoughts that are going through your head. How do I need to obey this? Write it there. It's helpful because it engages that kinetic part of our learning. We're audio. We're visual. We're kinetic. You're moving. You're, you're doing different things to help that stick. So you can underline or highlight or Whatever works best for you, practice looking things up so you know where they are um, and so that you can even get quicker. And something fun if you have kids, um, it is really fun to do what's called sword drills. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask me later, but they're fantastically fun. And um, something you do with your kiddos so they and you can get faster at looking up scriptures. So if you don't have one, I meant to grab one out of my bag, but there are also schedules so if you're like, Rach, I don't even know what chapter we're on, what are we doing, when do we do what, when do we have off days, there's a half page um, back there sitting with the books, um, and on the back is our schedule. So I highly encourage you, go ahead and grab one of those. Um, Okay, and the lessons are, like I said, Zoom, but they're also recorded. Our lovely Amy puts them on the website for us. So if you're gone a week, couldn't Zoom, you'll be able to catch up on that lesson later. So just watch the website for the lessons to be posted. And hopefully Rachel will get it together and send Amy the outline so she can actually post them. So we have a form as teachers we fill out so Amy knows how to label it and how to, what the title is and what the scripture is, which is very helpful. So, um, okay. So I think that's enough for right now. We'll have more announcements later, including small groups and, and where we're going to go. But let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would help us as we try to absorb the truth that you are the most high God. Lord, I pray that you would 
Help me to have clarity of thought, clarity of speech, that you might help my sisters to be able to set aside the many things we all have going on in our days, that we might look to your scripture and that we might consider it life. Lord, that we would cling to you, that we would cling to your promises, that we would rejoice in the signs and wonders that you have blessed us with. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is more sure than our feelings, our thoughts, our experiences. Thank you that you are everlasting and that we can trust you with our very being. Lord, as as we consider Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and the things found in your word, might we be moved, might we be changed women, pleasing in your sign. It's in Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen. All right, so before we dive in, um, as you might know, my husband uh, led a tour up in New England, and one of the preachers that he introduced us to, his name was Samuel Davies. And Samuel Davies, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones shook his head once and said, one of America's greatest preachers, and none of you even know who he is. And I'm like, that would be me. I don't know who he is. But my husband does, because he's really good friends with lots of dead people. So he was very kind to take us and explain to us. But one story about Samuel Davies that I thought was very helpful as we think through our passage today is a story back in 1752 when the College of New Jersey, a little university you might know as Princeton University, was starting. It actually was starting for, started under very biblical premise. Um, Presbyterians, Samuel Davies started the first presbytery here in the States, and he went back home to the United Kingdom to raise needed financial help. So Davies' fame as a preacher was so great in London that news reached King George II that a dissenting minister from the colony of Virginia was attracting notice and drawing very crowded audiences. When the king expressed a strong desire to hear him, his chaplain invited Davies to preach in the royal chapel. He is said to have complied and preached before the royal family and many of the nobility. As Davies was preaching, the king was seen speaking at different times to those around him. While the king was speaking, Mr. Davies paused and became silent. Then he looked in the direction of the king and is said to have exclaimed, When the lion roars, the beasts of the forest all tremble. And when King Jesus speaks, the princes of the earth should keep silence. So King George II was not the only king that needed to learn when to keep silent. We read in chapter 1 of our attitudes of a transformed heart of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now Martha Peace did a character study on Daniel himself showing how he viewed God as the high king and the God most high. But I would really like us to pause this morning and consider how God transformed King Nebuchadnezzar and led him to make the proclamation that we are going to read about in in 
we read a section of it in our first chapter of our book, but I wanted to go ahead and we're going to go over the whole thing because it is absolutely delightful and absolutely amazing. Now, there is a little bit of contested, some people believe Nebuchadnezzar truly came to a saving knowledge of the Lord. Some say, hmm, he did the proclamation, but not all the way to salvation. So I I am here to tell you, I am of the persuasion God saved King Nebuchadnezzar. So um, in a mighty way, and, and I will try to lay out for you this morning why I think these things. And two, I checked with Chris. We're on board. I checked with Ron. He amended. And then a couple, uh, several of the commentaries that I was reading all said yes. King Nebuchadnezzar would not have. So I'm kind of telling you the end of the story before, but he does too. So I feel like I can do that. So, but just the amazingness of the transformation. So we're talking about attitudes of a transformed heart. I want you to see the amazingness of God in transforming this king, really of the known world and how amazing that is. But before we crack open our Bibles to Daniel 4, I think it's going to be helpful to have some background information on King Nebuchadnezzar. Who is this man? What was he like before the Lord brought Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah into his life? I love the name Azariah. If anybody wants to go ahead and name their son that, Britt, I mean, it's out there. Just saying. So um, we usually think of their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What were Nebuchadnezzar's thoughts about the world around him and himself? So I did some digging in some antiquities and found some facts about him. And the reason I really want to lay this out is because, ladies, sometimes isn't it easy to click into, it's just a story. Not, this was a flesh and blood person, just as real as the king of England today, this man was king. Just as real as the president of the United States, this flesh and blood today, this man was flesh and blood. These are historical narratives. This isn't a cute little story that God put in his word for us to have a moral platitude about. This is the very God of the universe touching a real man of flesh and blood. So that's why I want to lay out a little bit of historical background of this is really real. Now, as you're reading through, if you ever go home and do your own little research, I will tell you the secular historians We'll toss in lovely things like, yeah, the Jews, their Bible, they threw stuff in there, but it's not true. There's no record of this or that or the other thing. And ladies, if it's in the word of God, it is true. So we shape and form our view of history according to what God's word says. So... Nebuchadnezzar reigned as king of Babylon for over 40 years. 43 is is what most historians say. He was known as a conqueror, and Jeremiah calls him a destroyer of nations. And he greatly expanded the Neo-Babylonian Empire. He conquered the nations of Assyria, Egypt, and Judah. 
Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem on at least three occasions in 605 BC. So now I'm, now I'm putting them on an actual timeline for you guys. And remember, BC, we always work to birth of Christ. So as you're going towards the birth of Christ, as it gets later, the numbers get smaller. And now we're after the birth of Christ, so obviously the numbers get larger. So you're going to hear the numbers go down. So 605 BC, when Daniel was taken to Babylon, then he attacked Jerusalem in 597 BC when the prophet Ezekiel deported. And finally, in 586 BC, when the city was destroyed along with the temple Solomon built for God's glory. Back in those times, gods were viewed as regional. So they had a god of Babylonia. They had, oh, that's the god of Judah. So they're very regional. If you destroyed another country's temple, you took everything valuable out of it. You took it back home and you presented it to the temple of your god. And basically your thought pattern was, my god beat your god because I beat you. So... We read very sad things in Daniel 1. Actually, if you have Daniel open, go ahead and flip to just Daniel 1. We're just going to read the first couple of verses as we set up this background. Daniel 1, 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So here we have God moving in the history of man. He is the one that gave the king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So here we see Nebuchadnezzar, he was a religious man. So he's first mentioned by his father as working as a laborer in the restoration of the temple of Marduk. So Marduk was the main god that Nebuchadnezzar worshipped. Marduk was the chief god of the city of Babylon and the national god of Babylonia. Upon ascending to the throne, listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says. So this is his inaugural address. He says, O merciful Marduk, may the house that I have built endure forever. May I be satiated with its splendor, attain old age therein and with abundant offspring, and receive therein tribute of the kings of all regions from all mankind. So this is the religious nature of the man we're talking about. Now, Just in case you're like, Marduk, is that, I mean, did they just kind of adopt God and give him a different name? In their creation myth, Marduk is a young warrior god and the only deity willing to go to combat with Tiamat, the goddess of the sea, and she's the embodiment of chaos. In return for facing Tiamat, the gods agreed to make Marduk king of the gods. So he then killed her with an arrow that split her into two halves. With one half, Marduk created the heavens, and with the other, the earth. Then Marduk, in this great battle, used the blood of another god to create human beings so that we could serve the gods. So this is what they believed how heavens, earth, and humans were formed. 
<laughs> he makes Babylon the first city and home to his temple where Marduk lived in the form of his sacred statue. He was called Great Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth. Hmm, this will be important later. Keep that in your minds. So, Nebuchadnezzar's main activity, other than as military commander, was the rebuilding of Babylon. So if you want to flip over in your notes, I actually went ahead because me standing up here and blah-blahing at you is hard to really imagine. I wanted you to visually see the splendor of Babylon, the great city. So he completed and extended fortifications begun by his father, built a great moat and a new outer defense wall. So commentators said that defense wall was 80 feet wide, wide ladies. They said four chariots could ride along the top side by side and turn around. So 40 feet, 80 feet wide, excuse me, and 320 feet tall. He paved the ceremonial. You're going to see a white pathway that was called the processional way. He paved it with limestone, rebuilt and embellished the principal temples and cut canals. This he did not only do for his own glorification, but also in honor of the gods. He claimed to be the one who set in the mouth of the people reverence for the great gods. So this is the religious nature of this man. The great temples and monuments were accented and made accessible by new roads. And special attention was given to the creation of the processional way for the festival of Marduk, during which the god's statue was taken from the temple and paraded through the city and out beyond the gates. This road was 70 feet wide and ran from the temple complex in the heart of the city out through the Ishtar Gate. That blue gate you see there is the Ishtar Gate. Now remember, ladies, this is a time frame where everything is hand done. Bricks are handmade using wooden molds. They also glaze them in that bright, brilliant blue so that it would shine in the sun. So these are amazing things. Um, there are ancients that really wanted this gate and the wall surrounding Babylon to be one of the seven wonders of the world because of its magnificence. So, so the Ishtar Gate is in the north, a considerable distance of over half a mile in length with walls rising over 50 feet on either side. They were decorated with over 120 images of lions, dragons, bulls, and flowers in gold. So these are um, signif significations of different. The dragon is Marduk's little pet. So lions and bulls signified other um, gods and goddesses and the flowers for fertility. So I want you to think through the following inscription. This was written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. They have the actual clay tablet that it was found on. So it was on a clay tablet. I want you to think what overarching character pattern do you hear from his own words? Okay, so listen with me. I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the exalted prince, the favorite of the guard Marduk, the beloved of the god Nabu. Nabu was the king of wisdom. The arbitrator, the possessor of wisdom, who reverences their lordship, the untiring governor who is constantly anxious for the maintenance of the shrines of Babylonia and Borsippia. The wise, 
the pious, the son of Nabopolassar, king of Babylon. To Marduk, my lord, I make supplication. O eternal prince, lord of all being, guide in a straight path the king whom thou lovest and whose name thou hast proclaimed as was pleasing to thee. I am the prince, the favorite, the creature of thy hand. Thou hast created me and entrusted me with dominion over all people. All right, ladies. What character quality are you hearing? Narcissist. Narcissist. Biblical name of that sin is pride. Yes. So King Nebuchadnezzar in scripture is mentioned in the Old Testament books of 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. However, he is most in the book of Daniel. So let's go ahead and look at a couple of passages to see the character of the man in scripture that we are studying. Flip over to Daniel 2. If you're already in Daniel 1, flip a page. Daniel 2, 5. I'm not going to lay out the stories just because we don't have time. But I want you just to see his character coming out of his own mouth. What is this guy like? The king replied to Chaldeans. So again, he's had a dream, but he won't tell him the dream. And he says, you tell me the dream and its interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, the command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. So they respond, the Chaldeans do, down in verse 11. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. There is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Going on to 12. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon, whether they were there or not. So this is the character of the man we are talking about. His word is law, and we read later on, immediately the guards went out to go start killing all of them. Now we know that God used Daniel to spare the wise men of Babylon, but this is the character of the man that we are talking about. And later we're going to hear Daniel talk to him. Look at what happens to somebody who says something negative to the king. What is his immediate response? Off with his head. Out of here. I want happy things said to me. So let's keep reading in Daniel 3. We're just building our character case. Daniel 3, 14 through 15. Now we have the golden image. He wants everybody to bow down to his golden image. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to because they are staying faithful to their God. And Nebuchadnezzar is talking to them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image I have made very well. But if you do not worship you will be immediately cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Now, ladies, if you know the rest of that story, we know exactly 
what God can deliver. But this is the mindset of the man we are talking about, which makes what we're about to read all the more glorious. So we know God miraculously rescues Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you haven't, your homework is go home and read Daniels 1 through 3. Okay, there's been a good span of time now that has passed between Daniel chapters 3 and 4. Some commentators give it about 20, 25 years have passed since Daniel and they say that because we're going to read in a moment. Daniel 4.30 indicates that all of Nebuchadnezzar's building projects have been complete. He's at peace in the land. So the events in chapter 4 are probably towards the end of Nebuchadnezzar's 43-year-long reign. Okay, just so you're kind of tracking with me where Nebuchadnezzar's at. So, And just so you know, Daniel's in the lion's den. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's Darius. So just so that hasn't happened yet in history. So where we're at in chapter four. So finally now, my loves, we are going to go to your outlines and your notes. Number one, we are going to talk about the king's surprising greeting. The king's surprising greeting. Look at with me at Daniel chapter four, verse one. Again, keep in mind all the scriptures we just read. Nebuchadnezzar, the king. To all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. Right there, you should be stopping and say, uh, excuse me, what? So, number one, he can say all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth because he pretty much was the king over the civilized world that he knew of. So he really felt like I'm the king over everything. So the known world at that time. And one of the commentators I read, how strange it must have been. You have a proclamation from a king who's known as the destroyer of nations. And what is he wishing them? May your peace abound. So interesting. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Wow, ladies, what a startling difference we see here as opposed to what we hear Nebuchadnezzar saying in chapter 3. It's almost as though he can't even just wait to give praise and honor to the Lord. Like, I need to tell you my story, but just let me tell you real quick how amazing this God is. And he's done signs and wonders for me. So God over and over again in chapters 1 through 3 has shown Nebuchadnezzar that he is God most high. And Nebuchadnezzar is not. Marduk is not. Only God is most high. That phrase there, the seemed good to me, it means I'm pleased to do this. I am delighted to tell you. Now, one of the commentators I read said, granted that this story of Nebuchadnezzar really did take place and is historically reliable, we stand amazed that such a king as he would ever reveal this to his subjects publicly. Assyrian and Babylonian kings typically exaggerated their greatness and personal achievements rather than calling attention to their defects and their weaknesses. 
Do you see what he's saying? Kings back then, you didn't say, hey, 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 let me tell you what someone else did for me. You said, hey, 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 let me tell you what I have accomplished. That's what Babylonians usually were known for. And here we have a dramatically different thing. Think of the goodness of God in revealing these things to Nebuchadnezzar. And think about it. He didn't reveal these things to Pharaoh, even though he sent the 10 plagues. He didn't reveal these things to Sennacherib of Assyria. And yet, he reveals himself to King Nebuchadnezzar. So think of the goodness of God in revealing himself to you. You could have been born at any time, in any country, to any family, and yet, God wove your story to the point that you're sitting in this room right now listening to the word of God. Wow. So his goodness to us is overwhelming. His direction, by his direction, look at the good he has done for you in allowing you to know who he is, allowing you to read his word. If you look even in church history, having a copy of the Bible was a precious thing. And how often do we stop to praise the Lord of, I not only have one really nice copy, I have multiple really nice copies of the word of God. And if I can't get a hold of those, I've got usually my phone with me and there's a copy on there too. So we are without excuse. But when is the last time we have stopped to thank the Lord for his word, for revealing him to us? So after the king's greeting, he begins to tell the sign and wonders that the most high God had done from for him through, number two on your outlines, the king's dream. The king's dream, Daniel 4.4, look down with me. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. John MacArthur said, now the word for rest means he was free from apprehension and free from fear. So we know, okay, his military conquests are now done and over. He's at ease in his house. And that word flourishing there means to grow green. Very appropriate for the king who built the hanging gardens. So he's in his palace. He's enjoying the conquests, the money he has taken from all these other countries, the building projects that he has done, and now he is at rest. Look back down at verse 5. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I bet. So A, we have the king is disturbed. And so what does he do about this disturbance? Looks down at verse 6. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them. That was nice of him this time. He actually told them the dream. I related the dream to him, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar. Remember, Belteshazzar is Daniel's Babylonian name. And he's proclaiming that because most of his readers are Babylonians. So they're going to know Belteshazzar as Belteshazzar, not as Daniel, his Hebrew name. So, 
whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen, along with its interpretations." Now, when he calls Daniel the chief of magicians, just so we're clear, back in that day, that just meant chief scholar. He's giving Daniel a compliment of his wisdom, his intelligence. And Daniel, over and over again, has told King Nebuchadnezzar exactly where that intelligence comes from. And so he knows the spirit of a holy God is in you. So it's also interesting, every time Daniel comes in, He's never with the other conjurers, magicians, Chaldeans. He always comes in separate from them. And uh, one of the gentlemen I was listening to just kind of paused and said, isn't that interesting? The false magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, Daniel's not with them. He is separate because he worships the one true God. So B, we see the king's dream described. The king's dream described. Look back down at verse 10. Now, these were the visions in my mind. As I lay on my bed, I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my head, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet, leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation. Inasmuch as none of the wise men in my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. 
So now, ladies, we just need to keep moving because there's a large passage of Scripture. Now that we know the king's dream, do you find it interesting, too? King Nebuchadnezzar, he's talking about the tree, talking about the tree. All of a sudden, it goes, tree, he, hmm, should be a little clue of what's to come. So now that we know the king's dream, we need to know number three, the interpretation for the king. The interpretation for the king. And just as back the king was disturbed, now A, Daniel is disturbed. Daniel is disturbed. Look back down at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Now, I would like to respectfully disagree just a smidge with Martha Peace when she spoke in our first chapter as Daniel being afraid to give the interpretation. I would like to present to you a, a different thought pattern. Because in 1 through 3, do we ever see fear in Daniel of giving an interpretation to the king? No. So, that word appalled there means astonished. And that the phrase, for a while, it can be translated for an hour. But this one here seems he just stopped for a long moment because he was appalled at what he knew he had to say. And the interpretation of this dream. Ladies, stop for a second. Daniel does not delight in what he's about to tell the king. Now, if it were me, let's remember who Nebuchadnezzar is and where Daniel comes from. Nebuchadnezzar is the king who attacked Daniel's home, who ripped him from his family, who took him to a foreign land, who forced service on him. This is the very man who did these things to Daniel. And yet Daniel doesn't in his mind go, huh, finally getting what's coming to you. Does he? No. He doesn't sit there and say, finally, vengeance is mine. You've served Marduk and not the true God. You're getting what comes to you. We don't find that attitude at all in Daniel he does not delight in this. He actually wishes it on the king's enemies. So we see Daniel being upright and treating the king with respect and care. Instead of being vengeful and spiteful, Daniel shows, as Brian Boardman put it, a great tenderness towards this king. Daniel is an honest, upright man. He doesn't flatter the king, but he also cares for the king. And I think he means what he says. He really means, I wish this was on your enemies and not you. So see on our outlines, we see that Daniel gives the interpretation. Because God, the Most High, gives it to Daniel. So look back down at verse number 20. The tree that you saw, this is Daniel talking. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height 
reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which the beasts of the field dwelt and whose, whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. Now, ladies, I think the king probably did and should have already had a clue that this was him because back in the interpretation of the statue in Daniel 2, Daniel tells them, you, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and caused you to rule over them all. And then he says, you are the head of gold in that dream. But yet, Nebuchadnezzar is needing help with the rest of this. In that, this is Daniel, back down in verse 23, Daniel talking again. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. So ladies, what a very serious, solemn pronunciation of the Most High to Nebuchadnezzar. So this prompts Daniel to see on your outline. Daniel pleads with the king. Again, this is another layer of why I say he has such great tenderness to the king. He doesn't just leave it at that and say, good luck, see you later. No, he pleads with the king. He even tells the king, this is the right way to go. Please, please listen to me. Let's see what he says in verse 27. Therefore, O king, May my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. So here we see Daniel giving the king particular ways he can demonstrate repentance. Turn away from your sin. Turn away do righteousness, break away. This is the same word that's used of the Hebrews when Aaron tells them break 
their rings and he was making the golden calves. It's that break away. So a clean break away from your sins. Remember, who is Daniel talking to? The same man that we read where something negative was said and what did he, what did he say was going to happen to the Chaldeans when they said something negative? Tear them from limb to limb, and yet Daniel is pleading with this king, please break away. Maybe this can be prolonged. Also, the, the from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. You all saw pictures of what his great kingdom looked like. And we know Nebuchadnezzar's not the one out there doing the back-breaking work of forming the bricks and building the things. It was on the backs of the poor of Babylon and all these different nations that he has brought back captives to do his bidding. John MacArthur stated that this was a warning not only to Nebuchadnezzar, but to all world leaders of all times who want to set up their petty, puny little kingdoms and rule as the monarch of their own self-designated empires and set themselves up in their egos as that which is beyond and above God. This is a warning to them as well. And Nebuchadnezzar stands as a symbol of what God does with all people like that. But he says, beyond that, I think there is here a warning to us who may never rule any empire other than the little one we invent for ourselves. And we, who in our simplicity of a very uncomplex life and our lack of public notoriety, build an empire and crawl up on top and crown ourselves king, this is a warning to us also. So we've seen the king's surprising greeting, his dream, and the interpretation for the king, now we are going to see, number four, the king's warning fulfilled. The king's warning fulfilled. Look at verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, look at the patience of our God. Because I don't think it took 12 months for Nebuchadnezzar to be proud again. And yet he waited for that repentance. Twelve months later, he, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And he is about to open his mouth and show us, A, the king's pride. The king's pride. Look at verse 30. This is the part where he should have, he should have closed and kept silent, just like King George needed to. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself had built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Talk about arrogance. He has over and over again in significant ways been told we read it back in chapter 2. God has given you your kingdom. And yet, he's relaxing and at ease in his palace, walking around, viewing the beauty around him, the greatest king of the known world. And this is what comes out of his heart to his mouth. James Montgomery Boyce states, 
This is not just Nebuchadnezzar's sin. This is our sin. And it is ours both individually and collectively as a nation. The greatest sin of all is that we take glory to ourselves instead of getting credit to God. When we do well, we think that's our achievement. When we do badly, we think it's somebody else's fault. It is the perspective of fallen humanity. So here, he is looking around to his own achievements. Look what I have done. Look at what my hands have built. Ladies, what are ways we subtly take God's glory? Do we rush through our days just reacting to whatever comes our way with no plan in place to spend in time in the word or spend time with the Lord in prayer, praising him for who he is? Do we think of our to-do list as more important? I have great confidence if we did a show of hands, all of you would raise your hand and say, I think time in the word and prayer is very important, more important than my to-do list. But, ladies, what do our lives show? That's more important. What do we functionally live out? Do we maybe look at our children in moments that they're actually behaving well and say, well, it's because they were raised right. Do we compare ourselves to others and think about ways how things we do are better than them? Oh, if they would just ask me how to run this, it would go so much better. Oh, if they would just see that, it would be so much better. Do we put others down at work, out loud, or even just in your own mind because they're not putting as much effort forward as you do? Do we sometimes subtly go home and look at our Husband's habits of spiritual disciplines and, of course, find fault in his, you know, he's a little lacking. So you feel just a little bit better about your spiritual disciplines. Well, at least I do it more than he does, so I'm fine. You comfort yourself in comparing yourself, but you're not comparing yourself, and I'm not comparing myself to the right standard. We need to compare ourselves to what the God most high wants from us. Ladies, anything good we do or think is a complete grace of our God most high. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. Even our good works are laid out before us, part of his plans that we have the privilege to walk in them so that we can turn around and give glory to our heavenly Father. So these are things we need to connect with with this passage. It's so easy to just be like, well, I'm not a king. I'm just me. And Nowheresville, Maryville, Tennessee, Knoxville, Sevierville, wherever you're from, it's Nowheresville, Tennessee. Those of you that moved from California, you were like, what are we doing? going in the middle of nowhere. So, but it's beautiful. I love it. Don't want to go anywhere else. So don't, don't hear that from me. I love Tennessee. But you do feel like we're in nowheresville. I'm a nobody. Nobody knows me. Nobody. I'm nothing. And yet, do we not build these things up in our own minds, our own little kingdoms where we're our own little queens, and if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, Right? of I better get my way or you better get out of my way. 
right? Instead of considering deeply what has my heavenly Father set out for me and rejoice that I get to work and, and strive, and he sees the working and the striving. He is glorified when I transform my mind by the word of God. He sees my heart. He sees my longing to please him. Be encouraged by that. He set out the good works before me. I just need to walk in them. Be comforted in that. But also be looking for them to walk in them. So as a result of the king's pride, we are going to see B, the king's punishment. The king's punishment. Look back down to verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. Oh, the mighty have fallen. Here is the king of the known world, no luxury spared for him. His walls, ladies, were lined with gold. And yet here he is humbled to the nth degree because of his pride. But God in his goodness and his greatness does not leave him there. Number five, the king's transformation. The king's transformation, A on your outline, the true king is revealed. The true king is revealed. Look at verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. So that word blessed there, ladies, this is a verb used later on in Daniel 6 as the action that Daniel does when he is bowing his knees in prayer. So this is the attitude behind that verb blessed, bowing the knee in prayer. So this is the passive form of that active verb. But here, Nebuchadnezzar is signifying praise but remember, it's also bowing the knee. Here, this proud man is verbalizing his bowing the knee to the Most High God. He is now acknowledging that God is ruler over all, not himself, not Marduk. He raises his eyes towards heaven. One of the commentators said, ladies, well, ladies, he was, he was saying, think about it. What direction do cattle, what direction do their eyes normally point? down because they're foraging for food. And yet King Nebuchadnezzar, when the time was passed, seven years passed, he looked up to heaven. 
he raises his eyes. He's finally humbled, raises his eyes to the real king of kings and lord of lords. He is declaring things rightly to Yahweh, things that he had formerly ascribed to his God Marduk and others. Do you realize what a change this is? The very man who built a huge gate and processional way and shrines dedicated to his gods and conquered nations and dedicated all their golden tributes to his God. But we saw from his inscriptions, he really only did those things so that the gods would give him what he wanted. Really, at the end of the day, ladies, the biggest idol has a capital I. It's all about me and what I want. He was doing these things thinking, I will be, what did he use over and over? The favored one, the favorite. I'm your favorite, don't forget. Give me what I want, and let me get you a list of what I would like, thank you, right? But ladies, do we kind of slip in that sometimes? We don't realize it, but things we hear ourselves saying is, but Lord, I did it the right way. Why? But I just want, why can't I have it? I just want good things. Why? Are we doing the right things so that God will do what we want? Are we doing the right things because it's a loving obedience to a God who has revealed himself to us as mighty and as powerful? So here, Nebuchadnezzar came to a right understanding of the reality. There's only one true God that created the heavens and the earth. It is insanity for us to look anywhere but up to heaven for all things. It is insanity for us not to immediately bow our knees as we look to heaven knowing that our God is king everlasting and his kingdom will endure forever and ever. We need to constantly be viewing our life here with that before our eyes. So number one, the king is humbled. The king is humbled. Look at verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? This reminds me of Isaiah 45, 9. It says, woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, hmm, he has no hands. It literally, I have a friend, Susan Payne, she comes here to Grace and she throws pottery. Beautiful stuff. But wouldn't it be amazing if that pottery looked back to her and was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't want to be a cup. I want to be a face. What are you doing? Right? We chuckle because that's, Ridiculous. It's insane. That doesn't happen. And yet Isaiah, and then here in our passage, we are seeing it is just as ridiculous or insane for us to ask God, why do you do these things? Or try to ward off his hand. Like, nope, you can't do that. Sounds like a two-year-old that's trying to fight off his mama who's trying to keep him under control. Nope. Right? So that's what's going. Utter insanity to question our God. It's vital that we, be, we learn this at the beginning of our study. Our attitudes toward God will seep and permeate the rest of our lives. 
We need to see him as the most high God. We can trust him with every moment of our lives. He is faithful and just. He is good and even uses hard things and hard circumstances that may look bad for our good and his glory. So number one, the king is humbled. Number two, the king recognizes his blessings. The king recognizes his blessings. Look down at verse 36. At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. All right, ladies, every word is important. I want you to notice something. Look at the difference. Look at the difference at the end of that verse. Was added to me instead of is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built he is recognizing it was added to me given to me he has finally got it he's finally had his eyes opened God has revealed himself and Nebuchadnezzar is acknowledging it's added to me In even that phrase in that verse 36, restored to me. It was given back to me. So here we are. It's an action happening. This isn't a, I did it, pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. It's no, this was given to me. What a difference. What a difference. And then finally, B on your outlines, the king worships the true king. Look down at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Ladies, that last phrase, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Definitely a very stern warning for us to remember. But also, I want you to embrace it as a comfort. He is able. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Maybe you're sitting here going, oh, Rach, I mean, the Lord is bringing thing after thing after thing. I'm getting overwhelmed. Ladies, he is able. He transformed King Nebuchadnezzar. He can transform you. He can transform your heart, your attitude, your mind. If you feel like you're just so stuck in your own sin and so stuck in your own stubborn pride, he is able. If you don't see a way out, cry out to a most holy, most high God who is able to humble you. So as we move through this semester, ladies, You're going to get confronted. Martha Peace is really good at that. She will confront you in your sin. She will find you somewhere. And you'll have zingers. Listen to me. Be ready for it. Be ready. Prepare your heart for it. Cry out to God that he would humble your pride. That he would not allow you to be blind. Look how long Nebuchadnezzar was blind to his sin and his iniquities. Cry out to God that he would transform you from the inside out. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Thank you, God, that you are a God who is able, that you are God most high, and yet you dwell with a people lowly. Lord, you are opposed to the proud, but you give grace to the humble. So I pray that you would lavish us in your grace, that we would be so mindful and so grateful for the great things you have done in our lives that we might throughout our everyday life give glory to you knowing that you have given us blessing after blessing. I pray that as we move throughout this semester that we would be tender to your word, that we would not be haughty or proud, but that we would be meek and gentle and humble, listening to your word, listening to your word through Martha's book, as well as listening to your word on Sundays as Chris preaches, and listening to your word as we study it together as sisters, that we would be quick to repent, quick to put off our sin, quick to put on your righteousness instead. It's all these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.